Our Father, we thank you for this day which you have made, and I pray truly, Lord, that we will rejoice in it, that we will give you praise for all it is that you have done for us and in us. And Father, for what it is you are yet to do through us to bring about your plan and your purpose in this world. We're so thankful that we do not have to depend upon our own strength to accomplish your plan, but your Holy Spirit indwells us to empower us to do what it is you've asked us to do. And Father, today as we again study from your word, we pray that the instruction will be meaningful, that it will encourage us, it will cause us to have greater hope and faith. We commit our time to you in every need here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You should have an outline and a map uh, in front of you today. Page 29 from the outline and uh, the map of the uh, ancient Near East, or a map of the ancient Near East. The passage of Scripture that we've been studying for the past several Sundays, two or three Sundays now, the 10th chapter of Genesis is probably not a very often preached on passage of Scripture. Most of the people listed in the 10th chapter of Genesis seem just to be strange names to us, names that we associate with ancient Scripture and without not too much else. But I think it's important for us to always remember that the people who are listed here in this 10th chapter of Genesis are people such as you and I are, people who had lives, who had hopes, who had to deal with their maker. And as we study this scripture, we, at least as we see what probably came from these individuals, we wonder how many of them dealt rightly with their maker, probably relatively few. But each played a role in God's plan. Whether their name seems strange or, or relatively simple, they had a major role to play in God's plan. This passage, as with all other passages, was given for our instruction. It reminds me, uh, as I was thinking about this this morning, it reminds me of the uh, passage in Luke where Jesus was walking down the road to the little town of Emmaus, or Emmaus, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And there were two other individuals walking on the road, and they talked to him about uh, Jesus, and he acted as if, you know, we asked him, well, what are you talking about? And, and they explained that uh, they had this hope, but the hope died. And then he says to foolish men, and he goes on, and the scripture tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he revealed those things in the scripture concerning himself. When it says beginning with Moses, we're talking about the Pentateuch, these first five books of scripture. And I don't know whether he said much about the 10th chapter of Genesis or not, but I think going clear back to the Garden of Eden, he quickly swept through the Old Testament and revealed that scarlet thread of salvation that runs through all of scripture. All of the genealogies are important, but to understanding Scripture and to the coming of Messiah, the genealogy we're looking at this morning is the most important. The genealogy of Shem. We begin to see the special significance of this genealogy when we look at verse 21 of the 10th chapter of Genesis. Also, and also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. And the sons of Shem were Elam, and Asher, and Arpachshad, and Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. And Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. And two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, and for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yokton. And Yokton became the father of Amodad, Shelef, 
Hazar Maveth and Jera, and Hadaram and Uzal and Dikla, and Obal and Abemael, Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Yokton. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sefer, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth. These nations were separated on the earth after the flood. In the 21st verse, we're told that Shem, the father of the children of Eber. Now, since Eber was only one of the great-grandsons of Shem, why is the focus on him? Why does not it say that he was also the father of the children of many of the other of his great-grandsons? Why just Eber? Well, let me turn just for a moment over a couple of chapters to the 14th chapter of Genesis to the first phrase of the 13th verse. This has to do with the whole question of, of the conquest of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we're told that a fugitive, someone who escaped from the, from the capture of Sodom and Gomorrah, came and told Abraham, Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. Now, it's very interesting that this is the very first time in Scripture the word Hebrew is used. Abram the Hebrew. It was apparently derived from the name Eber. Abram, the son of Eber, meaning the descendant of Eber. Abram, the Hebrew. The importance of the statement, Shem, the father of Eber, of the children of Eber, apparently lies in the fact that back in Noah's prophecy, in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, we read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now we know that all of the descendants of Shem were not godly people. As we're going to see, many, many of the descendants of Shem were pagan, heathen. In fact, they persecuted the Hebrews. But there was this line of salvation, this godly line that ran through Shem into his descendants, and I think the focus on the children of Eber is there because it will be through Eber that ultimately the division occurs that leads into the line of Messiah. Writings found at the city of Nuzi, which was a major city in the Hurrian Empire thousands of years ago, which are dated back to the second millennium B.C., along with some writings which have been unearthed at Tel Amarna, which was the capital of the Egyptian empire during the time of Ignaton, who is sometimes called the heretic king, because he is the individual who, who changed the worship in Egypt from the worship of Amun to the worship of Atan, which may not mean anything to you, but it meant a whole lot to the ancient Egyptians and uh, he began to, to, to worship a single god. Happened to be the solar disk, but a single god, which was unusual for the Egyptians. But he built a, a capital halfway between Memphis and Thebes, which was a brand new capital. And there were discovered some writings which corroborate those found at Nuzi, which refer to, as you see on your outline in 3A2, the term Haberu. The term Habaru uh, can be validated from both of these sources, Mesopotamian source and an Egyptian source, that there was a people known as the Habaru who lived at that time in the, in the second millennium B.C. and were influential. They were known as a wandering people, a nomadic people, a people who didn't seem to have a specific place to be their nation at that particular time or their, their country. And I think that it's important for us to understand that the term does not just apply to Abram and his descendants, but it seems to apply to all of the children of Eber. Because as we're going to discover, Eber had two sons, Peleg, well, he had, this, the, he had 
the son Peleg and the son Yoktan, and not even from Peleg were all of those who were descended of the Abrahamic line, that is, the line of what would ultimately become Messiah. So you have two groups, the biblical Hebrews, and then you have what actually became the original Arabs. In the 22nd verse of the 10th chapter, it says the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Let me read to you what Josephus has to say about this. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, says this. Shem, the third son of Noah, had five sons who inhabited the land that began at Euphrates and reached to the Indian Ocean. For Elam left behind him the Elamites, ancestors of the Persians. Now that's not true. Um, the Elamites were not ancestors to the Persians, but that the Elamites were descended from Elam is uh, true. The Persians were related to the Medes, and the Medes and the Persians came in from the north. And the Elamites had already been there long before the Medes and Persians came on the scene, but of course they were absorbed into and thus in that way became related. Asher lived at the city of Nineveh and named his subjects Assyrians, who became the most fortunate nation beyond others. Arphaxad named the Arphaxadites, who are now called the Chaldeans. Aram had the Aramites, which the Greeks called Syrians, and Lud founded the Ludites, which are now called Lydians. Now that's what Josephus says. And this seems to be validated from other sources. So let's look at the five sons of Shem here. First of all, Elam. And we'll just go right down uh, through them as you see them in your not outline there, be five great nations. The descendants of Elam were, of course, the Elamites. Now, unless you've studied something of the history of the ancient Near East, the Elamites probably don't mean much of anything to you. But it was a great nation, Elam was. Uh, located in what is today Western Iran. Now, I've uh, located it on the map for you, and it's way over on the right-hand side here, right up into and uh, including a portion of the Zagros Mountains. The Zagros Mountain Range runs for hundreds and hundreds of miles parallel to the uh, rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, and serves as the northern and eastern border to, west, to, to Mesopotamia. The Zagros Mountains are a, a, a not impassable by any means, but they are nevertheless a, bar, a barrier. They rise up to 15,000 feet in height and uh, do have snow on them in the depth of winter, although they are relatively barren mountains. And from the Zagros Mountains would come from time to time peoples that would uh, interfere with the life of Mesopotamia. But Elam was in that foothill area, including a part of the plain, the foothills, and part of the mountains of the, of the Zagros range. Now, we first encounter an Elamite in that 14th chapter of Genesis. We won't turn there again because we'll be there uh, in a while. And in that uh, 14th chapter, we discover that there is a king by the name of Chedorlaomer who comes from Elam and captures Sodom and Gomorrah. He defeats a confederation of cities at the southern end of the Sea of the, the, the Dead Sea, and he carries off Lot into captivity. And as we read that passage this morning, a, a refugee, someone who escaped from that uh, defeat, came to Abram and told him what happened, Abram the Hebrew, and Abram, you remember, got all of his manpower together, and he chased after Chedorlaomer. And the Lord gave him a victory over Chedorlaomer. And we have to understand that the Lord gave Abram the victory because the Scripture says he only had 318 men. Now, it's true, the army of Chedorlaomer was probably not like a modern army, uh, you know, of Iraq or Iran or anything like that. But the army had just overwhelmed the combined forces of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Adma and all those cities south of the uh, Dead Sea. And so obviously uh, it was a fairly sizable army. So God gave Abram the victory and he recovered uh, Lot and the other people from Chedorlaomer. But he was an Elamite. 
The Elamite Empire would be ultimately absorbed into the great Medo-Persian Empire. And the great capital city of Elam would go on to play a significant role in Scripture. The capital city of Elam was Susa, or as the King James Version tells us, Shushan. Beautifully located on a tributary river to the uh, Shat el Arab, which is formed after the Tigris and Euphrates uh, merge. This particular city is located sort of up in the foothills. It's kind of like our, our friends over here live at Shingletown. They live at Shingletown because, well, I don't know if that's the only reason, but one of the reasons it's a little cooler than it is here at Reading. <laughs> and so it was at Susa. Susa was cooler than Babylon or some of the places down on the plain because it was up a little in elevation. And so Susa became uh, an important center of the Medo-Persian Empire. Let me read uh, to you a couple of passages that refer to Susa. <clears throat> We're all very familiar, of course, with the story of Esther and uh, one of the beautiful stories of Scripture and the setting there. The setting of the book of Esther is the city of Susa in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains. Esther 1.1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces or satraps. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being present. <clears throat> now, the Medo-Persian Empire was the product of the influx, first of all, of the Medes into the plateau of Iran. And they established themselves at the great city of Ecbatana. And later on, their cousins, the Persians, rose up under Cyrus the Great and overwhelmed Media. Now, the Persians would establish the, the key capital at Persepolis, which is way in the southern part of Iran. But uh, Ecbatana was con also continued as a capital. The Elamite Empire was overthrown, and Susa was maintained as a capital, and Babylon was overthrown, and Babylon was maintained as a capital. So the great empire of Persia had four capitals, Ecbatana, Persepolis, Susa, and Babylon. And you discover as you read <clears throat> through the story of the ex exile that the children of Israel, some of them were in Babylon, and some of them were in Susa. And certainly, probably others had even been carried off to Ecbatana and to Persepolis. And Ecbatana is mentioned as a place where records were stored and where some of the records had to be uncovered to reveal that Cyrus had promised that the children of Israel could uh, return and rebuild Jerusalem because when Darius the Great came along, some of those over in that part of the land challenged the Jews for doing this. And Darius had all the records searched and they found the records in Ecbatana the old Medio, Median uh, capital. So there are four capitals, and Susa was one of the capitals. In Daniel, <clears throat> we also have a reference because most of what takes place in the latter part of Daniel, at least, uh, takes place in Susa. Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. <clears throat> And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. So Susa would be the site of some important events of uh, Scripture. A second son of Shem was Asher. Asher is the founder of the great Assyrian empires. One of the earliest cities of the Assyrian empire was the city called Asher. Now we read earlier in the chapter that one of the great cities located in Assyria was also called Nimrod, named after Nimrod. And so we have another city named after Asher. And the earliest known god of the Assyrians was also called Asher. So Asher was a real man for whom a city was named and a god was named. And the god Asher 
was really sort of a northern version of Marduk, which was the god of Babylon. And Asher and Marduk are simply Babylonian and Assyrian versions of Enlil of the Sumerians. And that god was carried to the west as Baal and his many versions, such as Chemosh and, and, and so forth. And, and they're all fertility gods. And they're all gods of war and gods of the storm. Gods that would be carried into battle to give victory. You wonder about their theology sometimes, you know, when two nations that worship the same God come to war in the name of the same God. <laughs> well, that happens even in, quote, Christianity, right? <laughs> As we have uh, in North Ireland, supposed Christian Catholics fighting Christian Protestants. Uh, for what? Well, for God. Strange theology. Now we know from the earlier part of Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod built Nineveh. Now Nineveh was truly a great city of Assyria and was for much of Assyrian history the capital. And we know that over and over again in Scripture the name Nineveh is used as a synonym for the nation of, of Assyria. Th this happens even referring to Israel. Sometimes Israel is referred to as Samaria, which is the name of the city, which was the capital under Ahab. And, and that simply comes from the hill of Shemer, from whom it was bought. The hill was bought originally. So, to, to use the name of the capital city as a, as a Well, we do this all the time too, don't we? The word from Washington is, in talking about international politics, or from London we hear this, and of course it's, it's referring to the whole United Kingdom. And so this is very, very common. But it was, the, the city of Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, but the people who established the great empire were the descendants of Asher, they were Shemites or Semites. They were not Hamites. The, Nineveh, the Nimrod, Nimrodites, if you like, were absorbed into the sons of Asher. And the great early Assyrian Empire, which existed around the 14th, 15th century BC, and then the later Neo Assyrian Empire, with which we're familiar from Scripture, all based in the descendants of. Asher. There is one passage in Scripture that seems to indicate that the term Asher is used as a synonym for Assyria, and that is in Numbers chapter 24. I'd just like to read a few verses there for a moment. Numbers chapter 24. Now this is, has to do with the prophecy that was uh, given by Balaam. Not the prophecy the king of Moab wanted to hear, but the prophecy he gave because God gave him this prophecy. Verse 21, And he looked at the Kenite and took up this, his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. How long shall Asher keep you captive? And he took up this discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber. So they shall come to destruction. And Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. So God overpowered Balaam and, and gave Balaam a prophecy concerning the Kenites, concerning Asher, the Assyrians, and even concerning the Hebrew people through this false prophet. The third son of Shem was Lud. Jo Josephus tells us, as I read in the passage to you earlier, that he was the progenitor of the people of Lydia. Now I have drawn Lydia on the map for you here, over in the far left-hand side. This is modern-day Turkey up here between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, ancient Asia Minor. And over in the western part of Asia Minor, there arose ultimately the great empire of Lydia. 
Now, Lydia is also referred to in Scripture, that is, through the name Lud. In Ezekiel, let me read a couple of instances for you there. Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 10. Persia and Lud and Put, Put, were in your army, your men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They set forth your splendor. In other words, they were allied to Tyre, the great city of Tyre, which we've already talked about because of the previous study of the descendants of Canaan. Tyre, uh, the capital city of the great Phoenician Empire, hired forces from other places to help defend the city of Tyre. And some of those who came to defend her were Lydians. We find that Lydia was also involved in an alliance with Egypt. Chapter 30 of Ezekiel, verse 5. Ethiopia, Put, Lud, all Arabia, Libya, and the all, and the people of the land that is in league will fall with them by the sword. These are some of the many allies of Egypt in the ancient times. There were alliances in ancient days like there are alliances today. They had their natos and setos and centos and whatever other kind of toes you want to talk about in those days, just as we have had in our recent history here. And, of course, most of these alliances ultimately came to naught. The Lydians were closely associated with the Greeks. The Greeks had high respect for the Lydians. Now, the Lydians didn't build a vast commercial empire, as did the Greeks, but they were a commercial people, and they were a very wealthy people. Uh, they had sources of gold and silver, and, and they ended up producing so much gold and silver, they didn't know what to do with it all. So the Greeks tell us, that one bright Lydian came along one day and dreamed up the idea of coining the gold and silver. And so the coin, as a unit of money, was invented by the Lydians in the 7th century B.C., according to the Greeks. And from that time on, we've had the coin. Of course, in our day, we have progressed on. And we have paper money. <laughs> and we have credit with no money <laughs> at all. <laughs> The one nice thing about the coin was there was something real and tangible, something with some weight, something which was, and the original coin was made of electrum, which is an amalgamation of gold and silver. You probably know that gold and silver form a perfect, will bond in any percentage at all. They form a perfect series of amalgamation from one fra a fraction of a percent gold and, and mostly silver to the other end of the spectrum. Gold and silver will amalgamate perfectly at any uh, you know, quantity that you want. And the early Lydians knew this, and they, they established the coin. That is according to the testimony of the Greeks. Now, some argue, even and believe, that it was from Lydia that the Etruscans came. Now, some of us have heard the story <clears throat> and have read the Odyssey and, uh, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, and uh, the Odyssey, which, of course, is supposed to give some kind of a background to how Rome got its start in the long run, seems to indicate that it was from Lydia that the original inhabitants came that inhabited the area north of Rome, which we even today call Tuscany. And the Etruscans would be a very influential people upon the later-day Romans. Now, the capital of Lydia was Sardis. Sardis is located up in the mountains. Sardis was built almost impenetrably. And when you go to the third chapter of the book of Revelation, you read that one of the seven churches was the church at Sardis. And some comments are made there in the prophecy given, the letter given by John, which talk a little bit about the uh, difficult access to the city of Sardis that Sardis was a city that sort of could relax and, and not worry because it was virtually unconquerable, built up in this plateau, surrounded by mountains, and yet, of course, it did fall. The Romans found a way to capture any city. <laughs> Didn't matter how well it was protected. They, got, they, they found a way. I don't know if they had hang gliders in those days, but they got in somehow in almost every city.
The fourth son of Shem was Aram. Josephus tells us that his descendants were the Arameans, which the Greeks called Syrians. Now, I'm sure it's not a problem for you, but I, I try to make this uh, point when I talk to the young people who come in as freshmen uh, at the college over there, and that there's a difference between the Assyrians and the Syrians. I mean, there's a great difference between them. They're, they're both Semitic peoples, but there's a great difference between them in terms of their historical background and, and uh, you know, of the one and the other. And so we dare not confuse Syrians with Assyrians. The descendants of Asher were the Assyrians. The descendants of Aram were the Syrians. And the Assyrians had their center of power over in Mesopotamia, whereas the Syrians had their center of power in the area just east of Lebanon, in the area of uh, Aleppo and Hamath, and of course the great city of Damascus. They were a powerful people who became very numerous, and they were involved in trade all over the Near Eastern world. They operated caravans. In those days, the cities that became great entrepots, such as Damascus. Damascus became a great center because of its ideal location. Damascus is located just on the east side of the great Lebanon range, and rivers flow down into Damascus that are full and, and clear and beautiful rivers. Remember the story of uh, Naaman, the leper, the captain of the, of the Syrian army? And, and the prophet told him to go bathe in the Jordan, and he, you know, he, he says, why should I bathe in that dirty creek when I have the beautiful rivers of Damascus to bathe in, clear and full? It just didn't seem right to him. Now, the Jordan River is not a clear river. It's muddy, and, you know, it, it's, it's a creek. You know, a good pole vaulter just get across that river no problem at all. <clears throat> Most places. But uh, Damascus became a great caravansary, a point from which uh, caravans would radiate out and return in. And these Aramaic peoples were known all over the Near Eastern world for their trading prowess. Their language thus became the lingua franca of the ancient world. When the Persians ultimately came to power and established this huge empire, which stretched from the Indus River to the uh, straits across from Constantinople, the Bosporus, it was a polyglot empire. There were 60 non-Persians for every Persian in the empire. And, and there were hundreds of languages and dialects spoken through the empire. So what are you going to have people speak? Well, they chose the language that most already knew, and that was Aramaic, to be the language of, the, the official language of the Persian Empire. And when the Jews therefore went into captivity and were carried off to Babylon and to Susa and to other places in the Mediterranean, uh, the Mesopotamian basin, they were exposed constantly to Aramaic. And so they learned Aramaic. And when they returned to the Holy Land and rebuilt Jerusalem and all, they came with Aramaic as their language. And what's interesting is that if you read the prophecy of Daniel, you'll discover that beginning in the second chapter of Daniel, the next five or six chapters are all written in Aramaic and not in Hebrew in the Old Testament, in the original language. And of course, it, it says so there. Daniel says, and these, they spoke in Aramaic and they said the following. And it's all written in Aramaic. Now, what's interesting beyond that is, in Jesus' day, street Hebrew was Aramaic. The language they spoke in the streets of Jerusalem was Aramaic. They didn't speak uh, sacred Hebrew. Sacred Hebrew was known by the scholars. But the people spoke Aramaic, the language of the Arameans, which was, of course, as I said, the language of the whole Near Eastern world, the trade language. Let me read a couple of places in Mark where this is emphasized. Mark chapter 5, verse 41. And taking up the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, 
which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. In other words, translated into Greek. This is what it means. And then later on, in the uh, account on the cross, in the 15th chapter, the 34th verse, we have another example of Aramaic being used directly in Scripture. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And these are not the only instances, but there are several instances in the New Testament where the Aramaic word is used, and then it's generally translated into Greek uh, for those who may not know Aramaic, which wouldn't be many. So Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. He probably knew Hebrew, and he also, of course, probably knew Greek, which was very commonly known in that part of the world at that particular time. Now, for some reason, as you read through this 10th chapter of Genesis, you'll discover that the four sons of Aram are named. The sons of Elam are not named. The sons of Asher are not named. But for some reason, the four sons of Aram are named. And we don't really know why, because we know almost nothing about them. Josephus claimed that Hull was the founder of Armenia, the great Armenian nation, and that Gether was the founder of the great Bactrian nation, that nation which was formed up in, in the area where the plains of Russia and Afghanistan come together and that tough uh, horse-mounted uh, people lived in the ancient world. Uz, many feel, was probably the individual who founded the land from which Job came. You remember where Job uh, was located, right? told in the very first verse of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Now, there's no reason for us to believe that he was a Hebrew. He could very well have been an Aramean. Josephus tells us that Uz may have been located in the region of Syria. Now, Jeremiah, in a couple of passages, makes reference to Uz, and the, the context seems to indicate the Uz he's referring to was located in northern Arabia. But northern Arabia could be defined in the broad sense to include as far north as Syria in the ancient world. Now, we come to the last but most important of the sons of Shem, Arpachshad. As far as the biblical narrative is concerned, this is the most important son of Shem. Through him would come Abraham and ultimately the line of Messiah. The descendants of Arpachshad were thought originally to have settled in the land of Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, to have settled way down at the southern end of Mesopotamia, where you see the term Chaldea written, just to the north of the Persian Gulf. We know that land today by another name, don't we? Kuwait <laughs> and Iraq. His descendants are believed to have lived in that particular area, and they may have been responsible for the great Akkadian Empire. You see the term Akkad there? Let me just real, real quickly uh, give you a background here. As far as historians know, ancient Mesopotamia, which is the valley of the Tigris-Euphrates River, was originally inhabited in terms of a civilized people by the Sumerians, S-U-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. Now, they were not known to even exist a couple of hundred years ago. But archaeologists digging over there began to discover uh, elements of a civilization that was pre-Babylonian. It used to be believed that the Babylonians were the very first civilization in ancient Mesopotamia, and since their civilization wasn't as old as that of Egypt, that the Egyptians had the oldest civilization. But as the archaeologists dig down, dug down into the various sites, they discovered a pre-Babylonian uh, society. And they found a script that was not Semitic. And as they dug further and further, they discovered there was 2,000 years of history prior to the Babylonians, 
which put a, gave them a society that antedated the Egyptian society. And so they found that the oldest civilization that we know about in the world was the Sumerian civilization. And the Sumerian civilization was ultimately destroyed by the Semites, Amoritic, Semitic Amorites, and uh, the people of Chaldea. And, and, and the people we're talking about here were those who ultimately overthrew ancient Sumer, the Akkadians being one of them. A Semitic people established themselves and conquered Mesopotamia, conquered Sumer. And later, other Semites would come along, the old Babylonians, the uh, Assyrians, and would gain control of this, this whole region. And of course, as we know, that whole area today is, is inhabited primarily by Semitic peoples, which we very broadly call Arabs today. Probably, at least according to Josephus, the primary descendants of Arbakshid were the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were the ancient predecessors of the Babylonians, and they were a Semitic peoples, people. Now, only one son is credited to Arpachshad. Whether that was the only son he had or it's the only son that's important, we don't know. But that one son is very important because he fathered Eber. And Eber's two sons would mark a major division point in history. Just as later on, Isaac and Ishmael would mark a major division, and Jacob and Esau would mark another major division, so the descendants of Eber mark a major division in the history of humanity, particularly as far as Scripture is concerned. Shelah became the father of Eber, and Eber became the father of Peleg and Yolkton. Now, several points right down here at the bottom of your outline. The line of Eber branches with Peleg and Yoktan. And the biblically important line, which is that of Peleg, is not described in the 10th chapter. It's described in the 11th chapter after you get past the Tower of Babel incident. And it's described in greater detail. The line of Yoktan is briefly described here. And I, I read you that list, and you read this morning, that list of sons. And it's kind of a, 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 you know, a practice in pronunciation to try to go through the list of names again, you know. They couldn't be like Bob and Jim and <laughs> George. and <laughs> They got to be, you know, uh, Hazor Maveth and so forth. But... You have here in the Sons of Yoktan a somewhat less detailed description of the lineage because they are less important. They're the non-Israelite descendants of Eber, the non-Israelite Hebrews, if you will, if you, can, if you can swallow that concept. About all we know concerning Yoktan is that he fathered 13 sons. Probably a lot of daughters too, so, you know, he was a busy man. Now, the names of most of these sons are associated with locations in Arabia, Yemen, and Oman, which you know to be at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. So, as best as we're able to tell, uh, we're talking about the original inhabitants of the greater Arabian Peninsula in the Sons of Yoktan as they're listed here. Now, some of the people who live in southern Arabia, even to this day, consider the purest Arabs to be those who can trace their lineage all the way back to Yoktan. Not to Ishmael, but to Yoktan. Because that's further back in time. That's a thousand years before the Ishmael-Isaac uh, division would come along. And so, obviously, this is a, a pure line of descent, at least in their minds. Now we come to that rather in enigmatic uh, phrase in the 25th verse. Talking about Peleg, it says, For in his days 
the earth was divided. Now, why does it say four in his days? Well, it's because the name Peleg, P-E-L-E-G, is directly derived from the Hebrew Palag, P-A-L-A-G, which means division, divided. His name was division because in his days the world was divided, in other words. Now, the word also means water channel, as in ditch, if you like, irrigation ditch. And as a result, there are several possible explanations for this phrase, in his days the earth was divided. First of all, some say, and to me, I, I have a hard time with some commentators. Uh, they say, well, this is what it means, and they give you some innocuous explanation. You know, it seems real simplistic. Um, some commentators say that it means that this was the first day in which official national boundaries were first established. You know, somebody drew a line on the ground, says, that's your country and this is my country. I have trouble with that uh, primarily because there's no way to prove that. Plus the fact, uh, people were drawing lines on the ground long before that, you can be sure. <laughs> they were drawing lines on the ground from probably back in the very first few generations after Adam and Eve. Uh, we, be, we are very territorial creatures, and uh, we're quick to draw lines and say, this is mine. <laughs> and of course, we know that in ancient Sumer, most of the wars which were fought, from what records have survived anyway, were fought over water rights, because ancient Mesopotamia is very dry, and, and access thus to the Tigris and Euphrates River. And so, you know, this, this seems very unlikely to me. But a second uh, possibility is given because of the alternate meaning of the term peleg as meaning water channel, that this refers to the proliferation of irrigation systems in Mesopotamia. So that this means for in his day, the great irrigation systems of Mesopotamia were expanded. Well, that's a possibility, but it, it seems a little bit unlikely that God would make an issue of that. It's like saying, well, in our day, uh, more cars got out on the highway. You know, the interstate freeway system was built. We know that the Tigris River flows at an elevation slightly higher than that of the Euphrates. So if you build a water channel from the Tigris to the Euphrates, you have a flow established. And you can branch out from that, and, and the ancient Sumerians did, and they built an irrigation system all through southern Mesopotamia to water the lands, and of course the lands became very fruitful. Those lands were ultimately, though, destroyed by those very systems because the water constantly being put on the land and the evaporation kept leaving the salts and, uh, behind, and ultimately the land was uh, greatly damaged by that. So it, it, to me, you know, it's possible, but it doesn't seem very likely. Now, on a grand scale, though, there are those that come along and say what this means is that in his day, Pangaea broke up and the seven continents of the world were formed. In other words, the great single continent that supposedly existed, you know, split apart and, and Antarctica floated south and Australia floated that way and, and North America floated this way and Europe and, uh, you know, they all floated apart. <laughs> I use the word float, of course, very... Uh, loosely here. Now, I'm not saying that's po not possible, but it seems to me the scripture would say a little bit more about that, because if that happened in the days of Peleg, there would have been considerable evidence concerning that. I mean, you know, continents are rock, and the continents, the rock continents are sitting on rock. <laughs> I mean, it's not really floating. And, and, and well, you know, the slight movement of the plates today have caught everybody in Southern California on pins and needles, right? And those are just little motions. Think if the actual continents were splitting apart and moving hundreds and thousands of miles from each other. I mean, you'd have massive earthquakes and volcanism like you wouldn't believe. I don't think so. Even though there are some who adhere that and have actually printed it in, in books. I think that continental separations and whatever occurred took place in the time of the great cataclysmic flood, personally. But finally, I think the most likely explanation is this is simply a reference to what happens in the first part of the 11th chapter of Genesis. 
For in his day, the Tower of Babel incident occurred, and the nations of the world became divided according to their languages. That seems most logical. It fits the context. It would be something that Scripture would make reference to because it gives all this information about the Tower of Babel incident. It's just, you know, everything going for it, in, in my particular opinion anyway. So the world was divided in the days of Pelech. Some biblical commentators say, and when the languages were confounded at Babel, that God blessed the line of Shem, the line of Peleg, by allowing them to keep the original tongue, which they say was Hebrew. <laughs> and they also, many of them argued, that will be the language of heaven. Maybe. Personally, I think it's a language we don't know yet. It's never been spoken on planet Earth. Chapter 10 comes to an end by saying that these are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Goy. Goyim. I think that what we're talking about is a summary of division of the division of the nations of the world ethnically, linguistically, territorially, and probably politically. In other words, nationalism as we have come to know it today originated right after the Tower of Babel incident. It's, it's very logical. And as people scattered to the corners of the world to get away from those people who who, who talk some kind of gobbledygook. I'm sure each person thought they were still speaking the original language, but they couldn't understand their neighbor. And so they scattered. And as they scattered, they were subjected to different environmental influences and different gene uh, pool isolations. And as a result, that great genetic ability that was built into Adam and Eve from the very beginning began to put itself into play and the races of the earth developed. And mankind became the great spectrum that we are today in terms of skin color, hair, head shape, all, all these different things. This really was emphasized, I think, after the Tower of Babel scattered the people around the world. What brought about this division into nations was not just the multiple descendants from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but specifically this Tower of Babel incident. And next week, we're going to turn to that uh, first nine verses of the 11th chapter and, and look at what Scripture says happened there. A lot of weird stories have come up as to what happened there. But let's see next week what specifically happened at Babel.